So he starts off, my brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And like, we could just stop there. That's actually the whole section is in one sentence, right? And you need to just take it for a second, take it apart. So he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in, in what? Our glorious Lord Jesus. Remember we talked about James being the brother of Jesus who wrote this, right? And in, at this point he's saying, our glorious Lord Jesus. And you could just in English kind of just go right beyond that. Like, yeah, that sounds right. Glorious Lord Jesus. But that word glorious really essentially means Jesus who is filled with glory or who represents glory, okay? And glory is this Old Testament idea, right? This, the glory of the Lord is the weight of God or the bigness of God or the feeling that you get when you're in God's presence. And, and in the Old Testament, we see very few people ever in God's presence. And even when they're in God's presence, there's some sort of protection there, right? Like, uh, you know, just the, 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 as God passes by, just the, tr- the train of the robe, right? Or like anyone in his presence generally is not really fully 100% in God's presence because the glory of God is something that would essentially make you feel so small and understand your own sin. And in fact, be something that would be dangerous for you, right? Moses comes down the mountain, he's glowing. He's glowing from being in sort of in God's presence, okay? I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here. And James says this word on purpose. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the glory of God, right? Jesus is the full representation of God. It's not a half measure, it's a full measure, okay? That Jesus is exactly who we think he is. And he wants to make it very clear. Yeah, I know this guy was my brother, and I know I've, I've t- I talked about them in, in the last, you know, in the first part of this. They didn't have chapter numbers back then. But in the first part of this letter as being the, the Messiah, the one we were waiting for, I want you to understand he is fully God, right? The glory rests in him. This is a thing that you need to understand. And James is saying this to Jews who would have been, if they weren't Jesus' followers, um, horribly offended by the statement. They would have been like, there is no man who has the glory that comes along with God. And he's equating Jesus to God in the statement. And it's actually really important. This is a moment where he goes, okay, he's our savior. He's fully God. He has the glory of the Lord in him. Okay. And it says, so he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus. I just want you to be clear about who he is. We must not show favoritism. And that word favoritism in, you know, it's, is, is in English, but essentially it's this idea that we, uh, you know, I'm not sure it exactly uh, translates perfectly. In some other translations, it says partiality. It's when we essentially give one person more worth than another or a better, uh, a, a better place in our congregation than another is what he's going to say here in a minute. Or we uh, prefer someone over somebody else. He says, this shouldn't be part of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Right? And at this point, you're probably reading this and you're stepping back and saying, okay, yeah. Okay, I can see how in the first century this would have been a problem, okay? The first century was uh, might makes right. If you were stronger, you were better. If you were, you know, able, faster, uh, you were better. Like, whatever it is that you had as an advantage over someone else was a power play, and it was essentially put you in the position of power, right? If you had a connection to Rome, you were in a good position. If you had, uh, if you were somebody who could protect, you were in a good position. It was essentially the strongest, the fastest, the best were the ones who had the power. And there were a whole lot of people, the poor, the slow, the infirm, the, you know, they were the ones who were kind of the outcasts of society. And so when James is talking about this, every single thing in society is wrapped up around this idea that 
The rich, the powerful, the strong, they are the ones who have the preferred place. And those who are on the other end of the spectrum, the poor, the lame, you know, the infirm, they're the ones who are getting the, the, the raw deal. And so you're like, yeah, in the first century, this is important for James to talk about this. It's not like that at all here nowadays. It's not like that at all. It's not one bit like that. It's, this is very relevant to us today as well. There's all kinds of systems out there that create inequity in our world, that create partiality in our world, that create favoritism in our world. This is not something that has gone away in 2,000 years. Uh, yeah, I hope that we're getting better at this. I hope that this is becoming something we're aware of. I hope that we're making strides and moving towards a situation where we don't show favoritism, partiality, or create inequity. But let's be honest with ourselves. This exists today in our, in our society. It exists racially. It exists socioeconomically. It exists politically. It exists all over the spectrum. And in our society, you are essentially uh, put into a position of power based on class, wealth, um, you know, p- political position. Uh, all these factors essentially put you in a place of either being having control and power or not having control and power. And he's saying the church should be a place where this does not exist. So step back. The church should be a place where race is not a thing. It's not a thing that that separates people, right? That we should understand that God's uh, body looks incredibly multi-ethnic. That we should continue to look more like the neighborhood around us. That we should continue to look more like the area that we live. Do you know, Irondale High School, which is essentially the high school that's in our area, is uh, 40% minority. Our church should look 40% minority. should not just be a bunch of white people sitting in a room. Okay? That's what James is talking about. It shouldn't be all rich people. We shouldn't have everybody from North Oaks coming over and going to the church. We, I'm happy to have some people from North Oaks come. You're, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Come on over. But also we should be reaching people who are poor. And there should be no difference between those two people when they show up at our church. There should be no difference between poor and rich. There should be no difference between uh, one race or the other. There should be no difference between, you know, uh, our political standpoints. Like, this is a big, uh, you know, a big place that can hold everybody's viewpoints here. We can, we can agree on that there are some things that we have to agree on. The gospel, Jesus, the Bible, right? These are things that we have to agree on. But everything else are things we don't necessarily absolutely have to die on the hill for. And we can create room for people who think differently than us. And we can have conversations without wanting to have that animosity and tension that we see out in our world. This is a thing the church should strive for. And I want you to know, like, I will never preach a political sermon. I just won't. And, and I've been very clear about where I'm at. I'm a libertarian. I like poking both sides. So if you're super conservative, I'm just going to poke you a little bit. And if you're liberal, I'm just going to poke you a little bit. And I can just play both sides. It's fun. Um, But I'm not going to do it from here, right? I might do it as your friend. Uh, Because we want this place to be a place that allows for everyone. And that doesn't show favoritism for one group or the other. And that's what happens in a lot of churches. We actually have um, this thing happen where... Uh, essentially you have a church designed for a certain group of people over here and a church designed for, and so we have this like segregated Sunday morning thing that happens where the rich people over here, the poor people over here, the white people over here, you know, the minority are over here. Like we, we want to, we want to, we, we don't want that. We want to have a church that's multi-ethnic, that's 
you know, different classes of people, different socioeconomic statuses where we all feel like this is our place, this is our home. That's really, really important to who we are. And I don't know if, uh, if you've always, you know, what your situation is. I mean, Minnesota's awfully white, so I'm just going to be straightforward with that. Sometimes it feels like it's very, very white. I know my experience growing up, I went to a Christian college that was the most ethnically diverse Christian college. And one of the things I learned while going there, my, my junior and senior year, my roommates, so I had, um, I had a Jamaican roommate, I had a El Salvadorian roommate, and then we had a Korean roommate, and I was the token white guy, right? So the four of us lived in a room together, and it was beautiful. It was amazing. We, essentially, our school was a quarter Asian, a quarter Hispanic, a quarter black, and a quarter white. That was what our, our, our school broke down. It was intentionally chosen to do that. And I remember thinking through, like, this is, we'd go to chapel, and it was beautiful. We'd have on campus every single day in your classes, you would be not the only white person in the room. It was a great setting to be in. I remember not really realizing how important that was. My first church, when I left there, I went to this church in upstate Connecticut, um, you know, and it was in this little town near the border of Massachusetts, and, you know, our church was 98% white, and so for two and a half years, that's where I was in this church. And I remember as I left that church, I spent six months uh, just kind of, we moved to my parents for a couple months, just kind of trying to figure out what we were going to do for our next stop in ministry and just praying and asking God to show us. We started going to this church. It was called People's Church. It was in Oklahoma City. It's one of the fastest growing churches in the country now, but then it was probably six to 800 people. And I walked in the door and the pastor uh, came from a multi-ethnic family. His, he was black. His wife was white. The worship pastor was a white guy married to a black woman. I walked into the building and it was half and half minority and white. And I wept the entire service. I don't know what it was. Something was messed up in me. Something I walked in there and I was like, I long for this. I long for our church not to just be one race, one socioeconomic status, one class of people, that favoritism wouldn't be a thing, that every person that walks in the door would feel like this is their home. And I don't feel like you need to ever feel bad about where things are at, but we need to continue to reach our community and we need to continue to look more like our community. That is something that's very, very important to us as a church. And James is saying, this is what the church should look like. One should find a home here. And favoritism is, there's no place for it as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is completely full of glory. Okay, that's what he says to us. So then he says, he gives them an example. And this would have been an example that was uh, pertinent to them. So he's, he's sort of giving them an example like, um, he's saying, oh, imagine a situation. Well, I'm pretty sure this was a real situation. So this is why he's giving them this situation. So he says, hey, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Everybody there is picturing that guy in their church. He's real. This person exists. This is not a fake story. This is, this is James pulling his punch a little bit and saying, just imagine a guy coming in with a fine robe. And, and back then, you were um, essentially... Uh, you could tell how rich somebody was based on how many rings they had, okay? So if you had a ring on every finger except for your middle fingers, I'm not 100% sure why, it's some cultural thing, but if you had a ring on every finger outside of your middle fingers, you were considered incredibly rich, right? So there was actually situations where people who didn't have a ring on every finger would go and either borrow or rent rings so that they could play it up when they showed up, you know? So it's like dressing up to go to the gala, right? There were people wearing their best robe, and they were putting rings on every finger. And when they showed up, people were like, whoa. Right? I'm guessing somebody on the finance committee was like, let's get that guy a good seat. 
That's a thing. That happens in churches a lot. People pay attention to that kind of stuff. So this guy would walk in with his colored robe. And so he, he says, essentially, imagine this guy wearing gold ring and fine clothes. And then imagine a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Okay, so the, the man wearing a gold ring, it actually uh, translates to gold-fingered man. Okay, and then the person who's in filthy old clothes, it actually translates to wearing his only tunic. Okay, so one guy would come in and he would be wearing his only robe, his only tunic, his only set of clothes that he has. Okay, imagine that. You got one set. Now listen, I am the kind of person that every meal I have, I spill something on my shirt. There is no way around it. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if everyone else is like that. It's either in my beard or on my shirt. It's usually both. It usually hits here, bounces, and goes down. And so I wear my food all the time. Now imagine you've only got one tunic. You go work out, you got one. You go work that day, you know, you, you, you're in a trade, you got one. You go home, you go to sleep, you're cold, you got one thing to wear. You got one thing, only one thing. So you can imagine the smell of somebody who has one tunic, one thing to wear. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? The guy who comes in with the really fine clothes, he's got lots of stuff to choose from. He's, he's wore his best stuff. His stuff that he spilled ketchup on is at home, right? This is his best thing. Then the guy who comes in with the one, he smells like he's got one. It's clear to every person in the room something is going on with this guy. He's so poor, he can only afford the one thing that he was wearing that day. And so the church was responding by saying, well, let's put this gold-fingered man in his nice robe up in the front and give him a great seat. Which, by the way, maybe these aren't the best seats. I don't know, like it. <laughs> maybe we show, okay, never mind. <laughs> they would put him in the front, and then they would say to the guy who walked in with the tunic, hey, man, like, could you sit in the back? Or, like, could you sit on the floor? Like, we can't waste a good seat on you. That's essentially what he was saying. Now, I know it doesn't exactly look like that, but I wonder what that story looks like in a church where people essentially are sending the message, we don't have a good seat for you. Right? We don't have a great small group for you. We don't have a community of people who care about you. We don't have a place for you in this, in this place. Like, that's not something that's not happening anymore. That happens. And we have to work hard to understand that we can send the message of preferring or giving favoritism to one person, partiality to one person, and not that to someone else because of their physical appearance, because of what we perceive about them, because of the judgment that we make about them, because of how they're dressed or how they look or what they say that might offend us or all of those things go into your thought process as you interact with somebody and you make judgments based on what you see and and what you're, you know, the conversation that you're having. And the question is, are you showing favoritism in those judgments? When we make judgments, can we trust our own judgments? I mean, are we saying essentially that some people are better than others based on the way that we respond to them when they show up here? And so he says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand here or sit, uh, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges judges with evil thoughts. So he basically says, if you do this, if you show favoritism or partiality, right, racism, classism, socio, you know, whatever, if you show favoritism or partiality to somebody because of one of these things, you have become a judge and you have passed judgment with evil intent. 
right? It becomes a, a sin issue for you to pass judgment with evil thoughts in that situation. In other words, it's not your call. And in fact, you're a terrible judge. So just step back and be like, I'm a terrible judge. That's easy to say, right? I shouldn't judge people because I have all kinds of baggage. There's all kinds of situations that have happened to me in my life. There's all kinds of things that I carry into this conversation. There's all kinds of things going on with me that if I let myself be the judge, I will do it in an evil way. That's the truth. And when we step back and realize that our heart will judge people in an evil way, we have to step back and ask the question, can we judge at all? And the the answer really is no. We're not the ones designed to judge. So he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So he says, look, you guys, you're missing it. This is your issue as a church. There's a lot of stuff going on here. You are, you are preferring the rich person who's actually not the one who's living the gospel out on a day-to-day basis. And unless you've been poor, which many of us have been, you don't know the amount that, that you actually rely on God when you're in that kind of a situation. Like, this is why Jesus makes all those statements about the meek, the humble, the poor. They're the ones that receive the, 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 the kingdom. They're the ones that inherit. They're the ones that are going to be blessed. They're the one. Jesus talks about this straight up because when you're poor and you don't have anything, and when you're able to rely on God, your relationship with God sometimes becomes alive in a way that a rich person would never understand. The way that a rich person has to effort themselves to be still focused on God. Because what happens when we have wealth? A lot of times when we have wealth, we turn in and we focus on ourselves and the things that make us happy. And you're like, well, it's a good thing I'm not wealthy. You are. You are. You're all in the 1%. Every one of us is in the 1%. We're the wealthiest 1% of people in the entire world. No matter how poor you are sitting in this room today, you are one of the wealthiest people on the globe. It's something we have to be thinking about all the time, right? Am I going to use what God has given me to serve myself, my selfishness, my sin, the things that I want to do, or am I going to find a way to rely on God and be poor in spirit and be humble even though I have a lot? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. And he's saying we can't can't dishonor the poor and we can't act like we're the ones who are rich. This is not a thing. And, and in their situation, the rich people were the ones that were kind of coming against the church. They were the ones in the synagogue who were fighting with the first church, who were persecuting the first church, who were basically dragging them. He essentially, he uses an example like, hey, you know what it's like to be dragged into court by a rich person and just be bled dry and not be able to even defend yourself? That's totally different today, right? That's not a thing anymore, is it? Yeah, a rich person could become president and bleed people dry. I'm just saying, everybody is in that situation. Somebody can use the systems and their wealth to bleed people dry. That's a thing. And that was happening in their church. That was happening in their church. All right. So he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, so he says, listen, the, the, 
the thing that helps us get beyond this favoritism, partiality, iniquity thing, what gets us beyond this is going back to the idea that we are called to live in a certain way and treat people in a certain way. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, And in fact, Jesus takes it a step further. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus takes it a step further and he says, you should love others as I have loved you. In other words, you should be willing to lay yourself down for every person in your world. Whether you have a judgment about them or not, you should be willing to lay yourself down for them. And I know that that is incredibly difficult, but God does not call us to easy things. He doesn't say, hey, try this really easy thing. This will be great. You know, your life will be like 10% better and things will go great. You know, he says, I'm going to call you to something that is ridiculously difficult, goes against your personal inclination to serve yourself and calls you to something that is outrageous in your culture, that you would lay yourself down for other people, no matter their status. And what we do when we do that is essentially what we are saying to God is your creation, all of it is good. Right? When, when God created us, he stepped back and looked at us and said, this is good. And when we take on that same mentality, that every person that we come in contact with is a creation of God, and there is a redeeming value in that human being, that they have value because God placed his image inside of them, that they are somebody who is dearly loved by God, that, that Jesus went to the cross to die for them, that's when we start to really understand what it means to be a Christian that's when we start to live this thing out. And James is putting those pieces together. Last week he said, don't just talk about it. Don't just listen to it. Actually go and do it. And today he's saying, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to be, uh, not gonna, you know, be a racist or, or favoritism or partiality or, or iniquity. I'm actually going to go live this thing out by serving every single person around me as though they were someone who had God's image in them, as though they were someone who Jesus died for. That's the thing that changes inside of us, right? That's the thing that helps us to do it. And he says, if you sin, you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So he says, Forever, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. That's bad news. That's bad news for everybody. Because we, we could step back and say, okay, some sins are worse than others. We can step back and say that. If you murder somebody, it's worse than if you tell a lie. Yes, I agree. But what James is saying is when it comes to our relationship with God, all of those things break our relationship. All of those things, just one infraction on the law makes you a lawbreaker, a transgressor, meaning that you need the forgiveness that brings you back into relationship with God. So while we may say some sins seem worse to us than others, what James is saying is all sins leave you in the same place with a broken relationship with God. And I think sometimes we get hung up on the do's and don'ts and we don't realize that when we sin, it's breaking our relationship with God, right? So my, my kids are the worst sinners ever. All right, they're, they're, you can read them like a book. You can walk into a room and you can look into their faces and you know exactly what happened. My daughter, a couple days ago, climbed into my bed. She likes to snuggle in the morning. I'm like dreading when she gets too old for that. It's like my favorite thing. She just climbs into my bed. She like jumps on my face and then dives into my blanket and we're cuddling every morning. This is a thing. Um, and it's beautiful. But she climbed into my bed and I smell Oreos. <laughs> And I go, Macy, why do I smell Oreos? And she goes, 
And I don't know. Did you, did you have Oreos? <laughs> Macy, I'm pretty sure I'm not the one who smells like Oreos. I think it, it could be you. No, Daddy, it's not me. Right? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure I could... Actually, do I smell mint? I smell mint grasshopper cookies, not Oreos. Honey, did you eat mint grasshopper cookies? No. And I step back and ask her again. Can you tell me? No, I didn't do it. And I ask her again. No, I didn't do it. And I ask her again. Honey, can you just tell me? No, I didn't do it. I said, did your brother give you those? Yes. <laughs> That's what else we do with our sin. We blame somebody else. And I call him in. And I know, right? He doesn't know I know, but I know. I said, hey, you must be really hungry. You haven't had anything for, to eat yet this morning, right? No, I haven't. No. Are you sure you haven't had anything to eat? Like, I don't know. I just, you sure you didn't have a snack this morning? No, I didn't. No, no, I didn't have a snack this morning. And I give him three or four chances. And he continues to do this. And finally I said, are you sure you didn't have like some mint grasshopper cookies this morning that you weren't supposed to have, that you had to go in the cabinet to get out, that you gave to your sister? No, you sure that didn't happen? Okay, fine, it did. <laughs> That's what we do with God, right? We are lawbreakers. When we are confronted with our sin, we hide, we blame other people, we don't take responsibility for our sin. We say it's God's fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's not, I'm a, it's only a small thing. This is the conversation we ended up having. Well, dad, it's just one cookie. I'm sure it was more. I'm positive it was more. But he says, it's only one. What's the big deal? I want you to understand that when you sin and when you know that God has called you to something and you choose to do something else, you are breaking your relationship with God. You are essentially saying to him, I know you have this rule. It is for my benefit. I know you want me to operate in this way, but I don't think it's that important. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'm not sure that that law makes any sense for me. I know that you called us to live in a certain way, but I'm not going to go ahead and apply that. And, you know, I see this happen all the time. And a lot of time it's the cultural uh, it's our culture that's warring with what God has called us to do. So I sit down with a couple I'm about to do premarital counseling with. I'm going to go ahead and do their, their wedding ceremony. And I ask them, are you guys sexually active? Are you living together? And they both look at the floor. And they're like, we know that you want us to live this way and that God has called us to live this way, but that's ridiculous. And we have this conversation about the cultural you know, expectations and God's expectations. And essentially what they're saying to God in that situation is, I don't care that that's what you want. I don't think it's a big deal, and I'm not going to follow through on it. But this is our heart when it comes to sin. It's, 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 every one of us has something. We're all lawbreakers in some way. There's always something that, that trips us up, every single one of us. You know, this is why Jesus, when he says, like, look, if you think that just not having sex with a woman outside of marriage is not you know, committing adultery, you're wrong. When you lusted after her, you committed Adultery. You, you think not murdering is enough? That's wrong. When you hated somebody, you murdered them. You, if you broke the law, just one little part of it, you are a lawbreaker. If, if you are trying on your own merit to get into heaven and thinking that you don't need to be forgiven of your sin, you are fooling yourself. And James is saying, if you commit one infraction, you are a lawbreaker. This is both terrible news and amazing news at the same time. It's terrible because we are lost on our own. If we think we're going to be good enough to get into heaven, we're wrong. That will not happen. That is the anti-gospel. So she's saying, give it a shot. Go ahead. Try to be good enough. You can't. You will break the law. You will break it. 
You will become guilty of all of it. You will become a lawbreaker. But then this is what he says. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. What does that even mean? The law that gives freedom, it's like the, we, we, we war against this idea. And we think that like Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And we think like, I just, I just don't want all these rules on me. But what you don't realize is that these things were designed for your freedom. That essentially God set up guardrails in your life to keep you on the road. And we keep running ourselves into the ditch. And then we pull the car out. We get back on the road and we go, I don't want any guardrails. And we go down the road and we crash it again in the ditch. And if we would look at God's law as being something that brings us freedom, that keeps us on the road, that keeps us moving in the right direction, that these guardrails are for our protection, that there is a cliff on the other side of that, of that road, and that we can steer ourselves into that and go right through the guardrail if we want, but God would rather us stay on the road and stay safe. This is why he's created the law. It brings freedom in our lives. It's not something that's bad. It's something that's amazing. He says, because judgment without mercy will be... Will, Sorry, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So essentially, at the end of this, he says, look, God has every right to be impartial or to be partial to you. He has every right to judge you, and he would do it perfectly. He wouldn't be a judge who has evil intentions or does it in an evil way. He would be a judge who does it perfectly. You need to step back and understand what I deserve is God's judgment. And what God gives me is his mercy. And then when we turn around and give judgment to other people, we essentially are saying to God, what? Thanks, but no thanks? Like, that's great that you showed me what mercy looks like. Now I'm not going to go and show it to any other person. And give them the same, you know, uh, chance as every other person. This is what God has called us to. To show the world mercy because we've been shown mercy. Right? To be intrinsically motivated by our relationship with God. As opposed to trying to keep God happy. And when we look at people, I think the main thing here is to understand that God loves every single person the same way. He, he spent time creating them. He put his, his spirit into them. He gave them value. He's asked us to show them mercy and to give them the same value that he sees and put in them. Will we do it? James says, don't just listen. Listen and do. Let me pray.